Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I am releasing another episode from the Micromobility World Catalogue. This one is a conversation between Gabe Klein, the first person to head up the newly formed Joint Office of Energy and Transportation within the US government, and Julia Thane, our MM World co-host. Gabe Klein's job is to break down barriers in electrifying transportation. I've had him on the podcast before on episode 122 for what was one of the top episodes of the year. Before he took his current role, he has held a number of really interesting roles as an executive at Zipcar and as chief of the Washington, D.C. and Chicago DOTs. He's also just a really smart thinker on transport and transport electrification. He joins Julia to discuss the role small electric vehicles can play in America's EV transformation. He's a self-confessed e-bike nut, and it was awesome to have him on to join and talk about micromobility and the potential for helping transform the U.S. transportation system. And with that, here is Gabe and Julia. Let's go. Hello, everybody. I'm Julia Thane, your co-host of Micromobility World, advisor to Micromobility Industries, and a principal at Rocky Mountain Institute. I am here today with one of my favorite people in mobility, Gabe Klein. He's the executive director of the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation. He's an entrepreneur. He's a founder. He's a policymaker, an author, and hopefully I can call you a friend. So Gabe, it's so, so lovely to have you here. I want to hear, Gabe, I'm going to start with a softball, and then we're going to very quickly get into the hardball, so don't, don't worry about that. But I would love to hear a little bit more about this Joint Office, the event, joint office rather, of Energy and Transportation yeah. and your mandate. You know, why is it important that it was created? What is it? You know, it, why should the micromobility audience care about this? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And yes, Julia, we are friends, and I was very happy. <laughs> yes. Very happy when I found out that you'd be interviewing me, and, and also that you're at RMI, which is a great institution, and we just met with them actually earlier today. So in terms of why it was created, so the, the bipartisan infrastructure law was passed, and there's obviously a tremendous amount of funding, and there was a recognition, a desire, and a need that's legitimate to break down barriers, break down silos. And I would say this could grow beyond energy and transportation in, in the longer term. But initially, uh, energy and transportation need to work together to make this happen. And so our office was spun up very quickly before I got here with support from the national labs, uh, Volpe, DOT, and DOE. And in some sense, the first year we were like a virtual office with a bunch of different people from different agencies, you know, making it up. Now we, we just posted 16 jobs last week. We are, you know, hiring aggressively. We need to hit the ground running. We have a new vision and sort of strategy for the office. And basically, you know, we need to make sure that we deploy 500,000 chargers and build a national network. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that should be multimodal. And, and we'll uh-huh. talk okay. We're going to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> more about that. Yeah. <laughs> going to say, Gabe, on that note, that's what I want to get to. I mean, you are known in the industry as someone who's being pro-urban design, pro-city planning, pro-density. You have, what, three e-bikes? How many e-bikes do you have? I do. I have a e-cargo bike. I have uh, I have two Van Moofs. And I, oh, actually, I have another one. I, I have a, a folding bike. 
a Brooklyn. You have four (laughs) e-bikes. So I'm curious, you know, I'm sure everybody else is curious. Why did you join a group that focuses on electric vehicles and charging infrastructure for passenger vehicles? A few reasons. One is I view vehicles as vehicles. I, you know, I don't want to be puritanical about it. Like I ride my bike everywhere, but I also recognize that people in rural areas, people in far flung suburbs that had, you know, maybe no hand in designing those areas do rely on cars. And I don't want to be a purist. I am ultimately motivated by the climate crisis. Uh, I have two young daughters. I want them to grow up with clean air and, you know, live in a better place. Now, having said that, I'm a big advocate for cycling, micromobility, walking. I believe in walkable communities. But again, it's about the mission more than anything. And mm-hmm. I believe me being here can actually make this much more of a multimodal implementation than it may have been. The NEVI program is a $5 billion program focused on highway charging to create this national network so that people don't have range anxiety. And they feel like just like today, when they get gas, when they're driving from like you're in LA, you're driving to San Francisco, you have no problem getting there. But the community charging grants, the corridor charging grants, those are going to you know open up a lot of opportunity for cities, towns, Indian reservations, others. And I think there's going to be a really interesting opportunity here to look at a dig one's philosophy and light Mm. up as many things as possible, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's no real easy way to say this. Uh, That doesn't sound like we're in high school, but especially because you are an (laughs) e-bike enthusiast, especially because you just talked about bike infrastructure. Are you popular at work? Like when you take, you know, I see you wearing the tie, so I know know you fit in. Um, (laughs) But at the same time, do you feel a bit like, a sheep in wolf's clothing, being somebody who really cares about these things, but being ensconced in an environment that's really, you know, pro-car, pro-electric vehicles. What are you saying to folks that's like controversial? I'm I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, people might be surprised. It's actually not like that. So, Mm. you know, whether whether I'm sitting over at DOT or sitting over at uh, DOE or sitting in my house and talking to people via Zoom all day, most people I work with are very, you know, urban centric. Right. A lot of people live in D.C. or they live in other cities, even the folks out in Denver. I mean, they ride their bikes every day. Having said that, you know, we have to be pragmatic. We, we work for the American people. We have to do everything. So I don't believe it's an either or. I think it's a yes and. And, you know, RMI uh, taught me during the transition that I served on for, for the Biden-Harris team that it's not enough to electrify on a one to one ratio all the yeah. ICE vehicles. Right. That we yeah. have to cut half the vehicles out of the fleet to hit the Paris climate numbers. And that's not something that we talk about regularly in talking points, because let's face it, like Americans love choice. And ultimately, what we're doing is we are giving them choice. But you have to be careful how you couch that. And in rural areas, no, we're not going to be cutting vehicles out of the fleet, I don't think. And in uh, exurban areas, probably not. But in urbanizing suburbs, like they're all over here in DC, in the DC area, or in urban areas, absolutely, we should be relying on shared mobility, whether it's the bus, the electric train upgrades that are coming to Amtrak, the shared uh, scooters, bike share systems, and those have been federally funded. So I think one thing that's important also to note is that, yes, we have seven and a half billion dollars for vehicular charging. But that could be paired with RAISE or, you know, HSIP or CMAC. I mean, there are so many. Yeah, but it's an acronym alphabet soup, right? (laughs) Oh, totally, totally. How do you get through that? It's so complicated and almost intentionally so, it seems like. We're going to try to simplify it. So 
some yeah. people are, are asking me, and this is probably your, your initial question that I didn't really answer is like, why are you here? Like, what is the mission? <laughs> so we want to be like the front door to the federal government for anybody's EV charging questions. So whether it's a state DOT or a city or an MPO or a company, you know, or an OEM, it could be anybody. And we'll figure out like we have 23 people on staff. We're on our way to 50. But that's not that many people, right? So that's not that many people. Yeah. So so we leverage DOT, DOE, EPA, the the White House, and they leverage us. And a lot of what we're doing is setting standards and making connections, right? And we are trying to set the best policy so that public, private, uh, all levels of government, NGOs can work together to do this in a really timely manner, but also fiscally responsible manner. And I'll be straight with you. It's a big challenge. The good news is that in cities, they've been thinking about not necessarily how to electrify everything, but they've been thinking about good urban design, good policy, and how that meets electrification. I think the biggest challenge is going to be getting the energy departments and the utilities and the DOTs to all work together quickly. It's not that they don't want to work together. They just don't necessarily know each other that well, right? So that's one of our big challenges. And when we do like technical assistance, webinars. We're going to be trying this year to bring as many folks together to do this as fast as humanly possible and as responsibly as possible for as many people. Yeah. You know, It needs to be equitable. And just throwing a charger into somebody's neighborhood and saying, hey, there's a charger there now. I don't believe that that's necessarily equity. So we're looking at the outcomes, the mobility outcomes that we're creating for people. And we've been encouraging states and cities to think about outcomes versus just chargers. Yeah. And I want to get to states and cities in my next question, but first uh, press on you a little bit about this yes and. So uh, you mentioned the federal government has to have a yes and approach to electric vehicles. And we're talking about light duty vehicles, for that matter, heavy duty vehicles, uh, and then certainly for things like micro mobility. But you're sitting on, you know, I'm kind of like envisioning Donald Duck sitting on seven and a half billion dollars of gold coins that are for uh, passenger duty vehicles themselves. So what else should the federal government be doing about micromobility? You know, like, I, I think I'm not alone in the people who are going to be listening to this and saying that I, I kind of like sighed, you know, in uh, discontent when I heard Secretary Buttigieg, who is riding bikes and doing all the right things in his own life, say right. that there wasn't going to be a bike tax credit uh, in the federal you know, legislation this next year. Why is that happening? What What are the political barriers? What What can we, uh, what can you do? What are you doing? Yeah. I mean, some of you may have heard of such a thing as politics. Oh, uh, what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, look, Wyoming introduced a law yesterday, I think, to get rid of electric vehicles by 2035. So, oh, you okay. know, yeah, Google that. It's, 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 I thought it was the onion, but it's not. So look, there are challenges inherently. There are tensions. And that's why we have to serve everybody. We have to move people in rural areas and exurban areas, or not move them, we have to give them the opportunity to have a cleaner transportation system. Yes, we need to reform land use. Yes, we need to build more densely. But we have a climate crisis. So let's like, let's be realistic about what we can do now on the bike tax credit. I mean, like, I think what Denver's doing, for instance, on the subsidy, awesome. DC just announced they're going to do the do the same thing. I think there's a tremendous amount that we can do at the, at the local, or I, I'm thinking of DC at the state level, <laughs> right? And I think we need to do that. I mean, an e-bike is not that expensive and it doesn't take much to make it 
a lot less expensive, right? Somebody I know, their company is giving a thousand dollar rebate for, for an electric mm. bike, and then in Denver, a uh, four or five hundred dollar rebate. So suddenly, like a yeah, bike is like six hundred bucks, right? So yeah, you know, and then like like here in DC, they're making transit free. So like, I do think we need to get into the mindset that mobility is not just something that everybody should just figure out on their own that it may be more of a public service. And I think one of the disservices we've done to like the, the scooter industry, and I think you can blame the scooter industry a bit too, is saying like, oh, you know, this is just a for-profit business. You're on your own. Instead of like, how do we work together? And this is why companies need to work with government. And I told companies when they started these, these businesses, don't just launch your stuff in the, into the city and not talk to them. Because ultimately, you're going to need them. Yeah, right? yeah. And you're going to need their funding probably. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think we're paying some of those penalties uh, and dues now, certainly in the shared micromobility space, less so in the owned micromobility space. Gabe, I, I want to get to this question around, you know, what should c- cities and states do? And often with folks I know who are pro bikes, pro e-bikes, they bring me back to this chicken or egg bikes or bike infrastructure, which comes first. And I've seen, so my personal view, maybe I shouldn't share my personal view. I'll be going to share my personal view after you share your view. But I, yes, I wonder, yes. like, I've seen a lot of cities and states, they're starting to put out these e-bike credits and incentives, which is awesome. But do you think cities and states are betting too much on bikes over bike infrastructure and over-indexing on policy and credits for the bike purchases themselves rather than investing in the, you know, the lanes, the actual bike share systems, yeah. the things that are going to be needed for people to both feel safe and be safe? I'm going to give you the politically correct answer. Yes and no. Okay. (laughs) All right. I mean, (laughs) in a, in a perfect world, we would be, you know, Amsterdam in our cities in terms of bike infrastructure or Utrecht or something or Copenhagen. That's not where we are. And, you know, when I launched Capital Bike Share in DC, one of the big criticisms I got was there aren't enough bike lanes to make it safe. And I said, yeah, but the problem is when you build a bike lane and there's no capital bike share bikes in it, people say, why do you need that? There's nobody in it. It is a chicken and the egg problem. And you look at DC now and the infrastructure and the percentage of of people biking, not just commuting, just biking everywhere. And it's through the roof. And I think it's because we did both. Right. So politically, capital bike share made the case. Same with Divi in Chicago for a massive network of bike lanes. And ideally, you would do the bike lanes first, but that's just not really how it works in America. And right. so let's, you know, let's just be be straight about that. But I think the cities that have done, well, you know, like D.C., Chicago, San Francisco, I mean, there's some examples of cities that have done both together. Yeah, well, my personal opinion is slightly along those lines, which is that you know, having had the experience of being city in city government, you recognize that bike infrastructure is a block by block battle. I mean, you try to do anything that's citywide and and not just, you know, some people come out, everybody comes out. And so um, personal opinion is that at the moment, we should be focusing on bike credits, bike incentives, um, ways to get people uh, bikes in their hands and be able to use them. Because we then are going to be able to create this groundswell of political support that hopefully will start meeting, moving the needle locally around bike infrastructure. And, and also just one thing, you know, like most of the, almost every bike share system, I think, in the country has a subsidized program to support lower income users, for instance. Right. Or like we're going to have free metro here in, in D.C. So it can be a rebate for you to go buy a bike 
or it can be a rebate and a subsidy on the on an entire system. And I think we should be open to both those things. Yeah. And Gabe, I didn't mention because your bio is, is so long and includes so many accomplishments that you are in that position of having been in city government in a you know decision making C suite level and also now in federal government at the similar level. You talked a little bit about some of the legacy of the work that you did in, in Chicago and DC, but I'm wondering what do you want your legacy in federal government to be vis-a-vis micromobility after you after you leave this job? Not that you're leaving this job, but you know, eventually. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think it's to hit the president's goal of five hundred thousand chargers. It's to seed two million chargers by twenty thirty um, nationally. It's to create a safe, equitable, multimodal and frictionless system for people to use that rivals any private sector system. Like one of the things I was so proud of with Capital Bike Share and Divi, for instance, in Chicago was that we regularly got asked, so where's like the Divi headquarters? And we're like, no, no, this is a government program. And they're like, what? This is a government program? <laughs> I love that. And and look, we had great private sector partners and still do yeah, on, on those systems. And I think figuring out what the public-private partnership looks like. What are the business models that work? What's sustainable for the long term? Unlike maybe how some of the scooter companies went into the cities and just, you know, bam, and like, let's get a big valuation, let's get out. And, you know, that's not what we're doing here. We're we're building something for the future. We're reinventing the economy around renewable energy. And the last time we did this was like, you know, 1900 around fossil fuels. So it's a big, big job and a big risk. And there's a lot of people in the government, not just me, that are working on all this. But the president set an aggressive goal. I think we can do it. And I think we can supplement with all of these other funding streams to create multimodal hubs, rebates, you know, all the things that that we're talking about. And they'll happen over the next few years. Yeah. And Gabe, I'm going to ask you two more quick questions before I let you go, because I know you're a a busy person and got to get to some meetings. And of course, we are very grateful for you and your service and everything you're doing at the federal government level. So uh, you used to be or maybe still are an investor. We have not seen the levels of investment in micromobility now that we saw in the past when it was more about shared micromobility operators uh, in cities. Why do you think investors should get excited about micromobility now? Do we have enough money? Should they be donating or not donating, investing more money? Um, you know, how, how do we really uh, supercharge that space? Yeah, I think the way we've got things set up in America, I wrote this article in Forbes a few years ago, transportation services don't make any money. And, <laughs> um, and it, look, it's the truth. I don't care if you're, you know, an airline, car sharing company, bike sharing company, like, we need to accept, and and by the way, I'm I'm not just faulting the private sector. I'm faulting government. If there's if, if the term should be fault, we need to figure out what we want our mobility systems to look like, and then we need to fund it, right? So if Bird or Spin or Lime or somebody has a great mousetrap, and we think we can get X number of cars off the road, and you know we think it can get the air to be this much more clean and make the system that much more equitable, how much is that worth to the city versus like, hey? Uh, we're going to give these guys a permit and then they're just going to sort of do whatever they're going to do. People have to finally get their head around what a true public-private partnership is. And it involves trust. uh, It involves shared values, shared outcomes, and shared incentives. That means sharing losses and that means sharing profits. It's really not that complicated. And I've been espousing this, you know, for years, at least ever since I put my book out in 2015. So, I think we've been going about it all wrong, 
basically. Mm. But the ownership model is much easier to figure out. And honestly, the companies, I mean, there's a bunch of them. You can look them up. They're raising hundreds of millions of dollars for bikes that you sell. The problem is we haven't figured out the model for shared mobility. And we got to get government and the private sector to see each other differently. It's fundamentally that. Mm, Capital bike share. Yeah. One, one last thing. Capital bike share, as far as I know, is still the most expensive system to operate in the country per bike. Right. But it's also it also has the highest return per bike because we set out to fund it well enough to fund the private sector well enough to operate it, that it's a system that people want to use because it's run really well. But see, I come from the private sector, but I've worked in government. So to me, this is like it's like a no brainer. But yeah. you meet some of these folks that like are starting these companies like, oh, we, we don't want to work with government at all. You know, no way. I'm like, okay, I'll see you in five years. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Gabe, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Um, I am going to ask you this one final question. So Micromobility Industries has run something called the Rider's Choice Awards. I don't know if you voted yet, but voting is closing soon. And there's a myriad of awards for things like best e-bike, best, you know, e-cargo bike, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to ask you three of your best. And actually, one of them is inspired by Matthew Iglesias. Um, so, you know, co-founder of Vox uh, and has in Matt. his Twitter handle, right, of course, uh, has in his, in his Twitter um, byline, the first thing says e-bike dad. So if you also consider yourself an e-bike dad, I want to ask you, what's the best e-bike? What's the best e-bike dad? Or who is the best e-bike dad? And what's the best e-bike for dads? Oh, geez. <laughs> well, I mean, I have what's now an old Taga bike. I've had two of them. Um, I think Tag is out of business. It tells you how, how hard the bike business is. I mean, there's so many wonderful like electric cargo bikes. It's hard to say that there's one. I mean, some of the European Tadpole models, I just love. Like there's there's one that like actually leans and oh, I'm forgetting, okay. forgetting who makes, I think it's Rael or something. I mean, there's so many great bikes and I, I'm a bit of a hardware junkie. You know, I grew up in the 1970s selling bikes in my dad's bike shop, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, and so... I've been around bikes, mopeds, electric skateboards, you name it, ever since I was five years old. So I'm a total junkie. And I really admire the R&D people, the entrepreneurs, the folks that put like their life on the line, literally like financially to come up with these bikes. And just one last thing. I mean, some of the European models, the, you know, Gazelles, the Van Moofs, the, um, Oh, what's the one? Uh, Urban Arrow. I mean, there's some real, real buttes over there. And I do think we need to produce more here in this country. Yeah, agreed. Amen. Yeah, like we need to have like American manufacturing of cargo bikes and bikes, period. And we should be beg borrowing and stealing from our friends overseas in terms of great design cues um, and building them here. Or they should open up, you know, manufacturing facilities here in the U.S. You're talking to the right audience. Well, Gabe, thank you again for joining. Really appreciate it. And as always, so many uh, things to learn from you and from your experience. Well, thank you, Julie. It's great to see you again and great to see everybody out there. And thanks for all the work that everybody in the audience is doing to make the U.S. and the world a better, cleaner place for the next generation. 